Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. This episode features Karen Kaplan, Professor Emirata at the University of California at Davis and one of the most influential American studies scholars of the last 25 years. Her research draws on cultural geography, landscape art, and military history to explore the ways in which undeclared, as well as declared wars, produce representational practices of atmospheric politics. To scholars working on drones, Karen is best known for two recent books, Aerial Aftermaths, Wartime from Above, and Life in the Age of Drone Warfare, which she edited with Lisa Parks. Her work has provided a crucial historical and cultural perspective on drone war carefully excavating its novelty from the history of aerial views of war and violence. Karen is a remarkable thinker and researcher, as you'll hear in our conversation and in the talk that follows. But she is also a generous, thoughtful and fierce scholar and an unstinting champion of the work of others. Karen gave the keynote address at the Drone Cultures Symposium that I recently convened, and you'll hear that talk shortly. First though, here's our conversation about drones, the aerial view and the future of drone studies research. Professor Karen Kaplan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Now, rather than begin with drones, I'd like to ask you another question about your own beginning in academia. What brought you to the study of culture, geography, and eventually the view from above? You know, it's been quite a long time. Uh, I'd say that I really began the set out on the path that led me to where I am today back in the 1990s. Uh, when I became interested in the global positioning system, or GPS. The first Persian Gulf War was ending. I was teaching at UC Berkeley, and I was teaching a class uh, that asked students to pay attention to the material production of objects. It was kind of a big survey class. And somebody brought up this new technology that was beginning to appear in cars, the global positioning system. And I hadn't really heard very much about it. And I became curious because I was sort of interested in technologies that were connected to mapping. And I started to learn about it. And I realized that was connected to the smart bombs that had been used in the first Persian Gulf War by the US and its allies in their air war. And I became increasingly curious and it was sort of, I was supposed to be writing a book about cosmopolitanism and I just kind of kept researching GPS and the next thing I knew, I was learning about the history of air war, the history of aviation. And I kept saying to myself, what in the world are you doing? Uh, but I couldn't stop. Uh, and I guess I would say that this story about how a military technology like the global positioning system or GPS, which everybody now has in their phone, uh, and how it became, um, how it moved from being a military technology into a civilian um, application uh, became a sort of grounding inquiry for me that led me eventually to study drones. 
I'm really interested in these kinds of origin stories that people have for their research and for drone research in particular. Um, our mutual friend Jen Schnepp, for example, told me that her interest was sparked by an ad in a women's magazine that presented drones as a domestic technology, which is so different from the allure I think that that many many of us ha- have had, which is through that more direct military um, connection. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you moved from um, GPS um, into the into drones and and sure. what fascinated um, you? I have to back up a little bit because the first book that I um, wrote was uh, about travel in uh, literature and um, mostly in mostly in writing Um, and I wrote it as a feminist critic but not only about works written by women and I was writing it through the field of post-colonial studies so I was interested in um, the way uh, people um, thought about travel in the following um, colonization and imperialism. And one of the things that was so interesting that happened is that my book, which I thought I was writing in the humanities, was being read by people in cultural geography. And I started to get invited to geography conferences, which was really exciting. Uh, And I had to, you know, I was surprised, but I, there were a lot of things to talk about with people in geography. So I started to um, spend more time learning about the history of cartography. And once that kind of dovetailed with the global positioning systems studies and my interest in air war grew, um, I thought that I would be writing a new book that was going to probably start with World War II and move to the present. Um, but as I worked on that project, I found myself moving backwards in time to the point where I had to really uh, spend quite a few years learning about the 18th century. Uh, um, and uh, so the front part of the book I, I that came out of this aerial aftermath has three large sections on uh, on the 18th century and uh, how aerial views um, became foundational to modern thinking about the world uh, and the place of the human being in the world um, in that century. It's a long way to get from balloons in the 18th century to drones uh, in the air in the 21st century but I really feel that I, I, I felt that I could not understand what was happening in air wars today if I didn't understand the emergence of the kind of um, really a mode of imagination that would allow people to think of uh, conducting uh, um, politics uh, uh, and to try to address conflicts in the way that they do uh, from uh, the Earth's atmosphere. So um, I guess that's a kind of a long roundabout answer to that question. That's a great answer. I'm, There's no I, one I, advertisement, <laughs> but, um, but uh, um, I, I, I think it probably, it, it, it's probably a fulcrum uh, around a number of different, uh, different points. Yeah, I think that um, for me, I probably spent a bunch of time resisting um, being drawn into writing about drones, having spent a number of years writing and thinking about torture and, and wanting to find something else. um, But then ending up back in the space of, in the space of war um, based on a number of um, hinges and pivots and so on. 
Um, I was going to um, save this save this question for a little later, but I might jump into it now, um, which because it it really speaks to the story you just told us about um, delving back into the archives of the aerial view. And I wanted to ask you about how you do that work. Um, your research is rich, is very richly textured and you draw on um, these very well-crafted and well-developed archives, I think, whether those are historical ones or a, or a kind of um, collage of contemporary media. So how would you describe your research methods? And, and in particular, how'd you go, how did you go about writing aerial aftermaths and particularly um, perhaps some of those earlier um those earlier archives and then building those into in towards the present Sometimes day. Sometimes when I uh, talk about my research method, I worry that I sound like an absolute, you know, lunatic um, uh, dilettante uh, because I kind of follow my nose, I guess is the way I would put it. And I blame my uh, both my undergraduate and graduate education because I'm a product of experiments of the 1960s and 70s and 80s in um, secondary education, higher education, uh, that uh, emphasized interdisciplinary studies, both as an undergraduate and in graduate school. So I, my, um, uh, as an undergraduate, I went to an experimental college called Hampshire College in Western Massachusetts, where um, the motto of the school was to know is not enough. And we were encouraged basically to ask questions and to, um, uh, try to learn whatever we needed to learn in order to answer those questions, which is basically posing a research question and then, you know, finding the tools um, by which to um, address it. And in graduate school, I was in an interdisciplinary PhD, humanities and social science PhD program, the history of consciousness at program at UC Santa Cruz, which was basically the same kind of thing. So uh, that could um, uh, engender a lot of what we call used to call creative floundering, but it also gives you a great deal of latitude. Um, I think it's best to um, use this approach if you're a fairly humble person. And that can mean that your projects take a long time because you can't just trip through various fields willy-nilly uh, without doing your homework. So that's kind of a, a, a long way of saying that to do the work I had to do for Aerial Aftermath, um, I had to really dive into 18th century materials. I was very anxious about it because I didn't, that was not a historical time period that I knew that much about. So I read uh, widely, um, but especially in art history and, and cartography, geography, um, um, History, art history and geography, I think, were the two fields that I read the most widely in. And I tried to go to conferences and to talk to scholars um, to make sure that I was on the right track. I am an avid follower of footnotes. So if I read something that's helpful or that I like, I, I try to follow up on like every single footnote. Um, and that's a way I sort of start to amass, get a sense of what people are talking about in a particular um, subject. Uh, but it's it's a little anxiety producing. But um, if you take enough time, you really can learn um, a great deal about what you might need to know. So um, uh, so the 18th century was important for that project. But for me, the most important chapter in Aerial Aftermath is the chapter on um, that deals with the history of photography and the aerial views of uh, Iraq during World War One and in the mandate period and the aftermath of World War One directly afterwards. Because in English, there's not a whole lot of writing about the so-called sideshows 
um, of World War One, which took place away from Western Europe. Um, and to me, the the as I learned about the history of aerial photography and um, surveying by the by air, um, the role of World War One and the air views of Iraq was just inescapable, and yet connecting those dots, there were materials in different fields, but they weren't speaking to each other. And so um, in that chapter, I was trying to make sure that these fields started to talk to each other and to, you know, kind of knit them together and, and explain why I thought it was so pivotal. Because for me, we really can't understand the current air wars that the United States is engaged in without understanding this history, even though the United States was not directly involved at that time. Um, so, um, I guess, so methodologically, it's about um, starting out with particular research questions and uh, um, rigorously following up on the uh, scholarship. I have to say, it's the most fun part for me. I could just do that all the time and skip the writing. That would just really be delightful. But unfortunately, that's not, uh, that's not the way it works. <laughs> Although now you are, uh, as an Emirata, you are now allowed to do this if you so desire, I think. It's true. It's true. But it's kind of, yes, right. It's true. And that, that may happen. <laughs> I still need some deadlines. So I was grateful <laughs> to your conference because it gave me a deadline. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I want to get back to drones in a minute. But um, but recently you've been working with... Um, Jen Terry, Tessa Lee, Astrid Naminas, Gabby Kirk, and others to develop the concept of everyday militarism, um, which is important for the talk that folks are going to hear. Um, so can you explain a little bit about where this concept came from and what it seeks to do? Sure. Um, I think the first time I used the term everyday militarisms was in relation to uh, work I was doing with Minu Moalem, who's a professor in gender and women's studies at UC Berkeley. Uh, we organized a conference in 2008 that we called Everyday Militarism. And uh, in writing the opening comments for that event, we started to theorize this notion of everyday militarism. And the, here I think, and that gives me an opportunity to say that for me, it's an explicitly feminist project. Um, it's no accident that many of us, many of the names that you just mentioned uh, are working through these terms uh, are people who come from uh, uh, feminist or gender studies programs or departments. And the everyday has been a critical analytic in feminist work for many, many years. So I think that we sort of intuitively coming out of those fields have us bring that with us when we consider something like uh, war, conflict, um, its aftermaths, its technologies, et cetera. Uh, it also probably connects to a Marxist uh, strand uh, of analysis um, that stresses the everyday as well. There'd be things to talk about along those lines also. But the key goal is to demystify militarism uh, and so that we can discern uh, how it's, its structural foundation, I guess, in civil society. We tend to um, uh, believe that a civilian life and military life are inalterably uh, in opposition to each other or that they're in perhaps a productive tension. And the point of everyday militarism is to understand both whether, let me put it this way, is to understand that these two ideas require each other 
but they also collapse into each other in ways that are very, very important to historicize and to be able to discern in everyday life because they do structure everyday life so profoundly. So, so how um, can I ask how militarism for you is distinct from militarization? Mm. That's a great question. And it's something I'm writing about a bit. Um, so uh, let me see if I can say, say it clearly. Um, militarization is kind of a sociological term and it was coined in an important conference um, that was held by sociologists actually some several decades ago. And the idea there is that something that is not military-like um, uh, is becomes um, militarized. And I think that militarism really re refers to a society that is structured by, for, and about military aims and purposes. Um, and I think, I, I think living in the United States today this is felt very keenly by many of us because so much of our national budget goes to the military, you know, to just like an absolutely obscene degree, just, you know, way out of proportion compared to most other nation states. Um, it's, it becomes so normalized that we don't even notice this as, as extraordinary, right? Um, so this is not militarization per se, this is militarism, much in the way that Prussia say was a militarist uh, society in the 19th century. Um, it leads to warfare. You can't not have warfare because the whole economy is structured around warfare. Um, all education kind of ends up leading people into um, militarist mindsets. Patriotism itself is a form of militarism, national identity, everything. So, uh, so I think that for me, militarism is a slightly better term to describe the society I'm living in right now than one that is militarized. But I think that both terms are useful. I think I'm arguing for um, a little more care and specificity in their deployment, if you will. There's a military term. We can't avoid those military terms, I find. Uh, I don't want to, pr to preempt the talk that folks will hear soon too much, but um, I wanted to ask you about what you make of the emergence of the pandemic drone. Um, quote, unquote, because it seems to me that this is a particularly elusive figure and you'll chart some of that elusiveness in, in the talk. Um, but also because it seems that, at least for now, much of the biometric technology that is being claimed for the pandemic drone, like gesture analysis or temperature sensing at a distance or proximity tracking, etc., um, appears shaky at best. And if it works at all, only works in exceptionally controlled environments. Um, so I'm wondering um, how you're thinking through that, that elusiveness of the figure. Yeah, you know, the pandemic has coincided as it happens with a moment when drone manufacturers and all the allied industries that are connected to drone manufacturing are making a huge push into consumer and civil society applications for the technology. Um, it's, it's just a really a historic convergence. So we are in a situation where we have a crisis in public health uh, that calls for creative solutions urgently. For better or worse, advocates of drones have stepped up with results that are not very, you know, the results of which are not really very clear as to how efficacious they are, as you've just pointed out. Um, 
drone manufacturers were already making, trying to make forays into as many sectors of society as they possibly can in order to sell their products, which is, you know, how our society works. Um, um, and the need for uh, ways to uh, survey the population have arisen at the same time. So it's kind of inevitable that these two things would become entangled. Uh, the increased, I, I think, you know, the jury's out as to whether drones really are helpful during the pandemic. They're certainly becoming ubiquitous, which is something I will argue in the talk. Um, and I think it is very clear that one of the results is a huge uptick in the distribution uh, and permeation of surveillance in everyday life uh, in industrialized societies, for sure. You've watched drones slowly move from the margins of academic research to become the focus of interest for scholars from diverse disciplines. And um, I know you would, you're too humble to say this, but I would say you've been a, a crucial part of that, of that movement. Um, what do you make of the emergence of uh, drone studies, if we could identify such a thing? And what do you think some of the strengths of the research so far have been? And what have been some of the blind spots? Well, when I first started working specifically on drones, I could collect the books on the topic, you know, just one little part of my bookshelf. And now it's, you know, taking over my study. There's lots and lots of work. Um, and that's a really great thing. It's perfect for interdisciplinary approaches because like all, you know, science and technology studies in general is very interdisciplinary and so, it allows people who work in different fields to come together to solve problems and pose new questions. So I think that drone research is very useful that way. It could be bring people from law, from physics, from um, meteorology, from um, uh, all, all, you know, all, all forms of hard and soft sciences, as well as humanities, social sciences. Uh, everyone's got a, um, a dog in the race, if you will. There's, there's lots to talk about. So that's, I think that's, personally, I think that's a strength. It can also tend to sort of water things down. One, one of the weaker aspects of drone studies for me in sort of my neck of the woods, as we say, which is media studies, cultural geography, the studies of representation is when it gets too narrow because then you can get a kind of techno fetishistic sublime going where drones are completely homogenized. They're all one thing, they're all powerful, we're all doomed. Uh, and it's it's just, I don't find it analytically very nuanced or finally interesting. Uh, and there's quite a lot of that in media studies, frankly. Um, so, or, or it can get very touristic. Um, um, or, or then you just have, um, you know, the celebration of how cool it is because oftentimes, the images produced by drones or racing drones, Chinese-made drones, due to concerns about cool. Uh, so I'd say either the, the it's cool, the sublime or narrow aspects um, can be a problem. Um, so for me, the issue is always, what's your investment in studying this? Do you have an investment in this? And for me, the investment is always the politics of perception in relation to histories of technology. Uh, how 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 does the history of technology help us understand how the how perception 
human perception shifts and changes over time? And what are the politics to that? How, what are the power relations that are related to that? And um, I think that's wide enough, but also specific enough. So the, the, those are my parameters. And I, I think that if drone studies, people who engage in drone studies can make clear what their investments are, what their research questions are, then that can be a very productive. Um, to follow up on that question about where drone studies has been, I'm wondering where you would like to see drone, drone research go from here. What are some exciting potential futures? You know, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is that for me, most of the materials that I read or learn from come from either the United States, Western Europe, Australia, every once in a while from East Asia. And I do not hear anything about drones from South America. I would love to know what are people, partly because my uh, language, this is a deficiency of mine in terms of my languages, but I would love to know what do people in South America think about drones for the most part? I don't know too much about that. Um, Africa, um, more from India. Turkey is big producer of drones right now. What is the discussion going on in Turkey uh, about drones? I'd like to see more of an internationalization um, of, of our discussion um, and bring more people into the English language conversation and also see how the, those of us who don't speak some of the languages where other conversations are going on can uh, learn from uh, those conversations. So that that's one thing. Um, also, more, more material culture studies. Um, some of us coming out of the humanities might need some help with this in order to learn how to do it, but we really have to follow the money. Uh, who is making drones? Uh, drones are not found objects. They come from somewhere. So what kind of drone are you talking about? Are you talking about a big predator or are you talking about a little teeny tiny nano drone? Are you talking about a, a toy? Are you talking about something, you know, as, as we're getting all of these iterations of drones, what kind of um, um, aerial vehicle are you talking about? Who makes it? Where does it come from? Why? Why is it getting made here? You know, what sort of fuel source does it have? What is its technicality, et cetera? Um, what does it do to the atmosphere around it as it moves through it? How can we learn more about this and why does it matter? I think it does matter very profoundly. Uh, so, uh, you know, it not just representational issues, but the material culture of the objects themselves uh, and the industries that they're connected to. And some of these industries, if we start paying attention to the industries, because they're so diversified themselves because of the conditions of uh, economics, the economics of manufacturing now, it leads us to very interesting questions, um, very, very interesting connections and new questions that we, we can raise uh, that, that deepen our analysis. So I think those would be the two things. Now, for a number of people that I've spoken with uh, in this podcast series, the answer to the next question has been your book, Aerial Aftermath, uh, but I'm ruling that off limits for you. So what piece of drone studies research has most influenced your own thinking on the subject? Gosh, I'm blushing. Um, well, it's a fun question to entertain because there is some really wonderful work. And um, there's your work, Michael, which I learned so much from. Uh, and has been so helpful. Uh, and I have to mention 
my co-editor, Lisa Parks, whose many articles and also her earlier work on satellites, only feminist critic working on satellites uh, that I knew of for many years um, and uh, now a really um, amazing thinker about drones and media of all types and whose latest book, Rethinking Media Coverage is really, you know, just must reading has been very influential on my thought. You know, we have to mention Derek Gregory as someone who cleared tremendous ground and has made great contributions to the discussion. And I think that the, the, the work that kind of blew my mind and made me think about exactly some of the issues I just raised a moment ago are, was um, uh, a little piece published in Environment and Planning D, Society and Space back in 2011, although I think I didn't read it until several years later, by Mark Jackson and Maria Fannin called Letting Geography Fall Where It May, Areographies Address the Elemental, which doesn't tell you anything probably about what it's about. But one of the things that this little piece did was talk specifically about the materialities of drones in ways that I hadn't thought through all the way myself before. That forever after I really couldn't address the subject in any other way, but in relation to what they had written. And it was, it was just very, very important for me. And I also have to mention Nasser Hussein's piece, the late great Nasser Hussein's piece, The Sound of Terror that was published in the Boston Review in 2013, which brought sound into uh, a field that was being very, a, a discussion that was very vision oriented in relation to drones. And also Catherine Hall and Kate Chandler's work on early drone iterations, really important historical work that they've done, done separately, but that I think speaks to each other. And Uta Weber's uh, work has been important. And I last things I'll mention are just uh, some articles by Anna Monster and Adrian McKenzie that were mind blowing for me and that were have really influenced me and that I, I find myself returning to and having to try to think through and understand. And Andrew McCoster's work on drone vision. Um, these are the things that I kind of, that are late motifs for me that I go back to and try to make sure I'm doing my work and the, the way I wanna to try to do it uh, when, I'm, when I'm doing it. Long answer. <laughs> and I could go on. It's, uh, you know, typically um, uh, I'm after, you know, one or two um, pieces to add to the reading list. Um, but in uh, you're very much living up to the, the introduction I gave of you um, where I, I refer to you as an unstinting champion of the work of others. Um, and so you've just you've just done that for us um, uh, with that with that wonderful list of things to read. Um, so now that you're semi-retired uh, and free of committees and classrooms, um, what's next for you in your research? Well, it's a really uh, wonderful point in my life. Uh, it's like a permanent sabbatical. I highly recommend it. And I hope that we can fight fiercely for retirement benefits for, for everyone so that everyone has a chance to experience this. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, having a slightly more balanced life, but getting to my own research, which I often have to put to the side because of its administrative responsibilities and other obligations. So I think I'm working on a book on atmospheric politics 
uh, and everyday militarism uh, that will address some of the issues that we've been discussing here and that I'll talk about in the uh, keynote. Uh, and I'm still not sure what the chapters are, but um, every time I have an opportunity to write something lately, I seem to be going in that, in that direction. So it will certainly address drones, but not only drones. Um, I'm interested in airspace and um, things like that. So that's one project. And I'm also working on a project on the feminist uh, artist, Martha US-based uh, artist, Martha Rossler, who uh, is, uh, has done all kinds of work, very, very politically informed work, including an anti-war series called Bringing the War Home which allows me to think through some of the issues I care about a great deal, including the division between domestic and foreign, as well as military and civilian, and uh, thinking about the aftermath of wars. So I really see both of these projects as outcomes of the work, the book, Ariel Aftermaths, and uh, they give me a chance to continue to think along the same lines, but to both expand and focus in on new um, subject areas. Well, thank you so much for your time and look forward to uh, reading the, the new book or books in, in whatever forms they end up finding themselves. And thank you so much. And now here's Karen Kaplan with her keynote lecture, Sensing Everyday Militarisms tracing the transnational circuits of pandemic drones. Hi, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, I'm zooming out to you uh, today from my home in Davis, uh, which is a university town on the edge of the great vast Central Valley of California. The town of Davis occupies the traditional unceded land of the Patwin Southern Windhund people. And I hope that this presentation and our discussion will make clear that a land acknowledgement is not just a rhetorical gesture, but the very ground for any critique of the militarism and state violence that drone warfare has come to exemplify. The entire economic, political, and cultural apparatus that has shaped and directed the practices of settler colonialism that wage war on indigenous peoples are the very dynamics that we're here to discuss. Michael invited me to speak at this event quite a long time ago, back when we thought we would be gathering in person in Sydney last May. And obviously COVID-19 interrupted those and many other plans, in some cases, tragically. I had certain ideas about what I would write about for the event last May. I knew I wanted to explore further the ongoing uh, debate about so-called good and bad drones through a deconstruction of the division between domestic and foreign leading to a consideration of the everyday militarisms that are hidden in plain sight. And I wanted to tie this problematic to the mythologized logics of the division between the police and the military, a division that legitimates state violence and contributes to the racialization of populations as criminal or insurgent targets of surveillance. And I also wanted to argue for a more in-depth analysis of the industries that produce the kinds of drones that are viewed as civilian devices, the ones used for humanitarian projects by NGOs or for leisure or entertainment or by agriculture or the sciences or by metropolitan police or border patrol, as well as the big transnational aerospace corporations that produce drones for overtly military purposes. If the domestic or civilian is inseparable 
from its opposite, the foreign or military, then the domestic drone is always an iteration of everyday militarism, or so I'm going to argue. To bolster my argument that drones generate everyday militarisms regardless of their intended use and through their intensified malleability and mobility, I wanna draw on examples from the last year as the pandemic has engendered new relations of distance and proximity. In the months that intervened between Michael's invitation to speak to you and this moment now in early December, 2020, the pandemic has offered innumerable examples of the ubiquity, malleability and mobility of drones across scales, sectors and situations. Indeed, drones have been everywhere since the pandemic was first officially reported from Wuhan, China in December, 2019. This is not just a bid for topicality or to hop on a trend. As Ileana Diaz and Alison Moons have argued, the rapid global spread of COVID-19 has shed light on and exacerbated long-standing inequalities in every corner and at every scale of society, from disparities in access to resources that divide higher and lower income countries to income disparities across differentially racialized and class neighborhoods to gender distinctions of life and work in households. However, drones do not just move silently and passively through this landscape of inequality. They participate actively in creating the world in pandemic, a world which is connected to its past as well as to its futures. To illustrate this point, I'm going to stitch together several sites and various moments from just off the shore of Japan to a small town in the state of Connecticut in the United States, to disputed test and surveillance flights in San Diego and Minneapolis, to the conflict zone of Nagorno-Karabakh and back to the US to a disputed election celebration in Delaware and across institutions and infrastructures like cruise ship tourism, municipal police forces, university-based innovation incubators, as well as state and non-state actors in war zones. Perhaps most obviously, drones played a significant role in documenting the shock of the first waves of social change as the virus spread around the globe in the first months of 2020. Aerial photographs of cities in lockdown, often enhanced with added soundtracks of dirge-like, sinister, gloomy music, crowded social media. Yet, as Patty Zimmerman and I wrote at the time, the spectacle of emptiness revealed by drone flyovers masked the presence of numerous essential workers who could not quarantine at home, as well as the homeless, along with the large numbers of animals that were observed moving around in suburban and urban spaces. The drone imagery from the first lockdown phase of the pandemic in spring 2020 then, rather than offering a way to see all panoptically, provided what we know to be the drone's eye view, highly selective, incomplete, and tied to discrete genealogies and visual conventions, many of them linked to the operations of air war and the targeting of groups identified through asymmetric power relations. But the first month or two of the pandemic offered other examples of drone operations and everyday militarism beyond the lockdown aerial imagery. It was perhaps inevitable in this time period of panicked uncertainty that drones would enter the public imaginary as aspirational saviors, delivering not only imagery or medical supplies, but things like wine. A news story from February reported that an Australian couple on board a cruise ship locked down COVID-19 quarantine off the coast of Japan 
purportedly ordered two bottles of wine, which were duly dispatched by drone to their cabin. As preposterous as it sounds, and the story was completely debunked, uh, the report was picked up by numerous uh, metropolitan newspapers, and it went viral for a brief time on social media. Of course, <laughs> the Australian couple, Jan and Dave Binskin, admitted that their original post was just a prank while claiming that they sought to create a more upbeat, positive message during a difficult time. It is important though to bear in mind as we talk about this prank that out of the 3,711 people on board the Diamond Princess, over 700 passengers and workers on the ship contracted COVID-19 and at least 14 people died. Here's Dave Binskin's first post. Without belaboring this example more than it deserves, I think it's interesting that the Binskins added a comment about the Japanese Coast Guard. Naked Wine Club, you're incredible. Just got the first drop. Thank God for drones. The Japanese Coast Guard did not know what the fuck was going on. This jokey comment speaks to the fantasy that a small hobby drone can not only relieve the boredom and inconvenience of quarantine for wealthy tourists, but that this kind of delivery service can evade or at least confound the territorial boundaries on the nation state and its security agents, in this case, the Coast Guard. As it happens, the challenges of securing an island nation only highlight the tensions that structure the non-military Coast Guard. Reorganized only 20 years ago under the authority of the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, Transport, and Tourism, the Japanese Coast Guard has seen its purview and responsibilities greatly expanded in recent years to include extensive patrolling of the enormous marine zone that surrounds Japan to monitor for piracy, smuggling, terrorism, and illegal fishing enterprises. And it's important to note that the Japanese Coast Guard conducts its work not only by ship, uh, but also by plane and helicopter, and also by drone, particularly for rescue and surveillance. Until very recently, these drones were produced in China. But last year, the Japanese Coast Guard announced that it will stop using Jap uh, Chinese-made drones due to concerns about information security. And just this year, General Atomics, the energy and defense corporation that's headquartered in San Diego, California, also known as the producer of the Predator and Reaper drones, released accounts to the press of tests of the maritime version of the Reaper, nicknamed the Sea Guardian, for the Japanese Coast Guard to help them patrol the vast areas of ocean that are involved in securing Japan, especially the peripheral islands from, Japanese, uh, from Chinese aggression. We will return to General Atomics and their efforts to repurpose their predators and reapers for a new era of geopolitics and marketing in just a few minutes. I begin this discussion of drones in the first year of the novel coronavirus with the Benskin's innocuous playful fantasy about pandemic wine delivery, because it not only opens up a world of messy boundary objects for our consideration, but it also illustrates one way that everyday militarism operates hidden in plain sight. The Coast Guard is such an ambiguous entity, non-military, but enacting the classic patrol practices perfected by colonial administrations, and thus evoking the blurry line between police and military that plagues and arguably maintains the modern nation state. The Binskin's prank also evokes the strained political economy of consumer, consumer drone delivery, still a wistful dream even for giants like Google and Amazon that aim to emulate the supply chains and logistics inaugurated by modern militaries.
The Benskins joke about the Japanese Coast Guard reverberated in my mind for months, kept coming back to me, troubling any hard and fast separation between commerce, policing, leisure, and the military, especially in relation to unmanned aerial vehicles. It's a good example of some of the ways that drones animate the tensions that structure everyday militarisms. How do they accomplish this feat? Drones generate the hidden in plain sight properties of everyday militarism through a number of key operations and characteristics. In particular, I wanna stress malleability, mobility, ubiquity, and above all, their capacity to produce or trouble relationships. Drones are highly malleable, the apt term applied recently to the technology by Anna Jackman. Indeed, drones are extremely adaptable. They take many shapes, are differentially scaled, and their mobility and distance technologies not only bring them to inf seemingly infinite numbers of locations and uses, but inalterably change those sites and ways of doing and being. In her theorization of atmospheric vertical mediation, Lisa Parks points to the capacity of drones to alter the chemical composition of the air itself and to influence movements on the ground. Whether broadcasting messages or shooting hellfire missiles or just hovering in the sky, drones affect thought and behavior. In this sense, we can understand that drone assemblages are not just innocent or inert objects, they're active network participants in world-making. As Parks puts it, they rewrite and reform life on Earth in a most material way. If drones were first primarily associated with the asymmetric air wars of the last 20 years, they become rapidly integrated into more, most sectors of society across a wide variety of scales and sites, from battlefields to agricultural fields, from DIY hobbyists to pipeline and Black Lives Matter protesters, from delivery of medical supplies to cinematic innovation, from wedding photography to human rights projects. This rise of what Maria Jimbert and Kristen Sandvik have termed the good drone has inaugurated an industry that generates billions in profits for companies like DJI, Parrot, and Intel, and leads to lucrative partnerships with universities and research centers. The transnational circulation of the complex, malleable objects and operational systems that now go by the overall term drone opens up many possible meanings and practices, even as it masks differences that matter. This growing ubiquity of drones has led to what Michael Richardson has referred to as drone culture, an ambivalent, intimate, and unsettling confluence of technologies, practices, discourses, and affects. Indeed, the intensified integration of smaller unmanned aerial systems into everyday life begs the question of militarism. Can the immense variety of drone-like devices linked to all kinds of developments in artificial intelligence and robotics be reduced and potentially rejected as always already militarized? By militarism, I mean the ways that society becomes structured by, for, and with military agendas and practices. Obvious forms of militarism can be observed in security discourses and operations, military recruitment and deployment, and nationalist patriotism taken to xenophobic extremes. In a militarist society, funding for homeland security, as well as for overseas deployment, is rationalized through the threat of war or outright warfare. But a more insidious and maybe pernicious form of militarism that legitimates more overt operations 
takes quotidian, even banal forms. The seemingly hidden in plain sight institutional infrastructures of production, logistics, or distribution, and cultural practices that create hegemonic consent to military dominance in supposedly non-military social life. I want to argue that if we view drones as highly adaptive and differentially scaled assemblages that rely on interrelated media infrastructures, materials, supply chains, and complex discursive similarities and differences, then we must trouble the distinction between good and bad or non-military and military drones. The very division between non-military and military is a manifestation of everyday militarism requiring the relentless burial of evidence of military or security concerns, ideologies, materials, and rationales in plain sight, as it were. A process that has become extraordinarily normalized in the example we're considering here uh, through divisions between domestic and foreign, good and bad, and civilian military. Therefore, I'm arguing that these binaries of everyday militarism primarily benefit the military as an operative arm of the nation state, along with its security and policing operations, and it benefits the corporations that produce the materials, of course. That is, the military garners ideological power and political legitimation from the appearance of its separation from civilian society, despite so much evidence to the contrary. And concomitantly, civilian society, such as it is, becomes exempt from responsibility for military operations to the point that it does not have to recognize the influence of or connections to the military that are distributed throughout everyday life. The malleability, ubiquity, and mobility of drones that operationalize the technology's everyday militarism drives an energetic collaboration between drone manufacturers, university researchers, and police departments as they improvise public health surveillance practices during a global pandemic. Not surprisingly, DJI, the Chinese drone company that is reportedly now worth over 2 billion in sales, leapt swiftly into action early in the pandemic, offering pilot programs to deliver medical supplies to remote regions based on projects they had already successfully implemented in numerous countries, adding new capacities to measure body temperatures remotely and to broadcast social distancing messaging. For example, the DJI Public Safety Disaster Relief Program offered to give or loan drones to qualified police fire and rescue services in the United States, offering as well free webinars and technical support. Accordingly, the police department in Elizabeth, New Jersey announced that they would use a fleet of five DJI Mavic drones to break up unsafe public gatherings. Police or governmental representatives in many countries, including China, France, India, Spain, and the UK also announced that they either were or would be using remote sensing devices, primarily drones, to conduct surveillance of body temperatures and to police social distancing in public spaces. Unsurprisingly then, in the third week of April, the police department in Westport, Connecticut, announced with some fanfare that they would participate in a pilot program co-organized by Dragonfly, a Canadian small drone manufacturer and researchers at the University of South Australia. Seeking to differentiate themselves from behemoths like DJI, Dragonfly advertises a more bespoke approach. As they put it on their website, we don't produce commercial drones in mass quantities. We design and manufacture professional drones for specific use cases. Emphasizing artisan craftsmanship 
and technical prowess, their website states that Dragonfly aims to build industrial drones that change the world. Helping to control the spread of COVID-19 appears to fit neatly with Dragonfly's corporate profile and mission. Teaming up with Dragonfly, Professor Javan Chal and his colleagues at the University of South Australia explained in a press release in late March that their algorithmic software will enable drones fitted with a specialized sensor to interpret human actions such as sneezing and coughing and monitor temperature, heart, and respiratory rates. Professor Chal, who holds positions at the Australian Department of Defense, as well as at the University of South Australia, is quoted as saying that the technology was originally envisaged for war zones, as well as natural disasters. Accordingly, the Westport Flatten the Curve pilot program promised to show just what the Dragonfly drones could do in collaboration with the University of South Australia's expertise, while positioning Westport as a community with a cutting edge police force. The chief of police, Spody Koskinas, stressed in his department's press release that the pandemic has opened up a new frontier and urgent need for the use of drones, particularly in reducing risk for police first responders, as well as extending services to remote areas, along with surveillance of social distancing compliance. To be fair, towns and cities all over the United States have been left largely to their own devices, literally and figuratively, since the Trump administration completely failed to institute a comprehensive approach to public health and safety in general and to the pandemic most particularly. Thanks to this chaos and confusion, infection and death rates in the US in April and May of 2020 were astronomical, particularly in the Northeastern part of the country. Westport, Connecticut, lies only 46 miles from New York City, and many of its inhabitants are highly mobile commuters. Thanks to the high rates of rail and automobile connectivity to urban areas, in mid to late April, the small but very well-heeled town of Westport was considered to be an early epicenter of the virus in the state of Connecticut. Thus, with lots of press attention, both television, newspaper, social media, Dragonfly and the Westport Police Department announced their collaboration. And a mere two days later, the town announced it had scrapped its plan. It was over before it had begun. A local First and Second Amendment activist organized a vociferous group of citizens who gathered in person to express their outrage. Also alarmed by the surveillance powers of the proposed pilot program, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, a prominent progressive non-governmental organization, released a statement on April 22nd, the day after the West, Westport Police Department press release that stated in part, towns and the state should be wary of self-interested privacy invading companies using COVID-19 as a chance to market their products and create future business opportunities. Any new surveillance measure that isn't being advocated for by public health professionals and restricted solely for public health use should be promptly rejected. And we are naturally skeptical of towns announcing these kinds of partnerships without information about who is operating the drones, what data they will collect, or how or if that data will be stored, shared, or sold. Not unreasonably, this ACLU position paper pointed out that even if the drone-based remote symptom detection technology is accurate, it probably cannot detect those who are infected who are asymptomatic. As we now know, this accounts for the highest numbers of those who contract COVID-19. 
Perhaps most critically, no hospitals or medical associations ask for these kinds of high-tech surveillance tactics. In April 2020, hospitals in the United States were still begging for adequate supplies of basic protective gear, like disposable gowns and masks, and were resorting to wearing layers of plastic garbage bags. There was a severe shortage of coronavirus test kits, and no systematic public health contact tracing program was instituted in the United States then or so far now. In many ways, the dire situation in the US last spring that I'm describing offered fertile ground for arguments for the use of so-called good drones. Advocates argued for their capacity for efficient, safer sensing operations. But we have to situate the desire for what Martin French and Torin Moynihan termed disease surveillance in the context of the tangled relationship between war power and police power that is driving politics in the industrialized world. Pandemic drone sensing programs have to be contextualized in relation to the increased blurring of the lines between police departments, the military, coast guards, and border patrol. And we can't really grasp this material intensification of everyday militarism in the US without acknowledging that specific legislation, in particular section 1033 of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 1997, began to allow the Secretary of Defense to sell or transfer excess military equipment to domestic police departments. Therefore, just after the first Persian Gulf War, a veritable avalanche of military grade material started to flood local police with assault launchers, bayonets, airplanes, helicopters, and even tanks. And of course, now this arsenal includes situational awareness and predictive software and small drones, contributing to the production of biopolitical racial subjects. Since 2001, the war on terror has debilitated civil rights in the United States, inaugurating all manner of sensing and identification programs at airports and other transportation hubs. Biometric tracking, facial identification programs, data mining, etc., have all become increasingly normalized and integrated into activities that blur the lines between civilian and military security practices. In addition to the opportunities offered by the pandemic to increase predictive biometric surveillance practices, we cannot lose sight of the massive infrastructure of air power in industrialized nations that smooths the path, as it were, for pilot programs like DJIs and dragonflies. This now includes the rapidly increasing flow of unmanned aerial devices from strictly military uses into not only consumer, but security and policing applications of all kinds, while larger drones like the Predator and Reaper can be modified and marketed to supposedly civilian entities like Coast Guards and Border Patrols. So aerospace corporations, and particularly consumer drone producers, have identified a lucrative niche market, metropolitan police departments and Border Patrol around the world. As Andrea Miller and I have argued, the growing dependence of border patrol and policing on drone assemblages must be situated within the long arc of air power in relation to so-called small wars, as well as insurgencies, civil rebellions, labor strikes, prison uprisings, border crossings, and protests against authoritarian regimes. The ideological assertion of a strict division between the military and domestic police undergirds the violence work of the state, as Michael Siegel would put it, and obfuscates the normalization of everyday militarism. 
keeping all of this in mind, it was not perhaps bizarre, even if it was unfortunate, for small town police departments, as well as large cities, to welcome the offer of drone producers of disease surveillance pilot programs. The panic and anxiety instigated by COVID-19, along with the uneven application of public health initiatives and practices, have raised the desire among many people, understandably, for some techniques of control. Surveillance technologies propose themselves as a modern and efficient method of assessing disease prevalence and a tool for enforcing social distancing. But these surveillance assemblages are highly restrictive and oppressive, demonizing and racializing subjects reinforcing structural inequalities, and even increasing anxiety or destabilizing communities while under-delivering vital resources or failing in the primary tasks of detection and preemption. It's impossible to analyze the economic and social cost benefit element of disease surveillance in general without taking into account the enormous push by specific industries and corporations for the integration of drone technologies into everyday life. Drones are big, business. An annual report issued by the Drone Industry Insights Group this past June offered the figure of 42.8 billion US dollars for the drone market by 2025, almost double the amount for this year. Massive numbers are cited in any number of reports and analysis. It's dizzying and even overwhelming. If restrictions on airspace continue to decrease as expected, a report by a major finance group argues that the greatest area of expansion for drones is predicted to be in the commercial arena, particularly for 3D mapping, delivery, inspections, data transmission, cinematic production, and video patrolling. The report concludes that algorithm-driven drones that use predictive or prescriptive analytics will be game changers, eliminating the need for human drone pilots and increasing profit margins. And of course, swarm intelligence will open the possibility of drones thinking and training each other. Uh, decreasing the role of human labor will only swell those profit margins. If even a percentage of the growth predicted by industry analysts takes place, we're still going to see a lot of smaller drones in the airspace around us. COVID-19 arrived at a moment when the drone industry is expanding exponentially in some ways while contracting in others. And at the same time, not incidentally, battlefield operations are also in flux. The growing ubiquity of drones and the marketing of increasingly affordable smaller units that can be purchased off the shelf alters the power dynamics of security and military operations in this transitional period. For example, DJI Matrix drones loaded with C4 explosives were involved in the attempted assassination of Venezuelan President Maduro in 2018. While three large U.S. drones armed with Hellfire missiles were key actors in the strike at Baghdad airport in January 2020 that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. The first example reflects a growing trend by non-state actors to deploy modified consumer drones for warlike purposes. And the second example illustrates the kind of targeted assassination programs that have become associated with the U.S. military and its allies throughout the war on terror. As we will see, the large, slow-moving military drones like the Reaper are becoming increasingly obsolete as newer iterations that further blur the boundaries between military and non-military move into widespread use. Concerns about who operates, what kind of drone, and why emerge as nation states and municipalities increase funding for security and policing and in an atmosphere of growing authoritarianism across the globe. 
the malleability, mobility, and ubiquity of the technology across scales and price points helps numerous actors and operators and further blurs any pretense of a hard line between good and bad drones or between military and non-military arenas. Accordingly, as Anna Jackman puts it, the drone remains at once a policing assistant and one to be policed. I mentioned towards the start of my talk that the Japanese Coast Guard will no longer be using Chinese-made drones, turning instead to modified Reaper drones made by US-based drone manufacturer, General Atomics. And some of you may be interested to learn that Australia has purchased 1.3 billion US dollars worth of similar General Atomics drones. Uh, you are going to have a whole bunch of Sky Guardian drones and you're welcome. These examples underscore shifts in perceptions of threat and strategies of deterrence, along with changes in the evolution of contemporary battle spaces and securitized zones, shaking up what had been a traditional drone industry. For many years, General Atomics had basically cornered the market for large UAVs. Their Predator and then the Reaper iterations conducted surveillance and aerial strikes, first in the Balkans, then in Afghanistan and the Middle East, and of course, Africa. Purchases of general atomic drones by US intelligence and the Department of Defense constituted a large, perhaps the largest portion of the corporation's sales, but the drones were also sold to many other countries, including the UAE and Turkey. The aging predator was officially retired from US Air Force service in March, 2018, but it has apparently come as something of a shock uh, to General Atomic to learn very recently that the Air Force has canceled orders for Reapers after this year. According to some analysts, this abrupt change in procurement reflects a growing realization that the Air Force needs aerial platforms that are survivable in a peer state conflict. In other words, if the US gets into an air war with China or Russia, it will need vehicles that are faster, lighter, and able to evade air defenses and that also includes those belonging to non-state actors. More autonomous functionality and swarm capacities are a growing priority for national militaries globally. The slow and heavy Reaper is now viewed as too easy to shoot down with current surface-to-air missiles. And meanwhile, Chinese companies such as Chengdu Aircraft Industry or Turkey's Baykar Industries or any of Israel's many drone manufacturers are offering state-of-the-art drones that are attracting buyers that used to buy General Atomics products. So what is a behemoth like General Atomics, which had just built a huge new complex at its already sizable El Mirage flight test base to do? They had expected the US Air Force to purchase Reapers for at least five more years, if not more, and plan production accordingly. Fortunately for the global giant, their program to modify versions of their military drones for civil entities like Coast Guard and Border Patrol was already well underway and could be scaled up. In addition to overseas sales to entities like the Japanese Coast Guard, General Atomic has been eyeing the domestic metropolitan police department, police market rather. Last winter, right before the pandemic began to spread rapidly in the US, General Atomics announced that test flights of its Sky Guardian drone, the MQ-9B or Predator B, would take place over San Diego, California, a large port city near the border with Mexico. Responding to nervous inquiries, General Atomics sought to assure the public that they were not selling military-grade drones to law enforcement agencies and that the Sky Guardian would be used only for mapping critical infrastructure and demonstrating possibilities for humanitarian civilian applications like 
broader support for first responders contending with natural disasters such as floods and forest fires. Despite the denials offered in carefully crafted press releases, Candace Burns' reporting for the Truth Out blog reveals that General Atomic aims to sell Sky Guardians to U.S. police departments across the U.S. by 2025. And as part of its efforts, General Atomics has touted the drone's persistent surveillance capacity, offering police departments the ability to silently monitor suspects or protests for up to 40 hours and stream high resolution video for more than 20,000 feet above. As Byrne points out, military grade drone integration in civilian airspace is rapidly advancing without substantial public debate regarding the privacy and civil liberties implications of normalizing military surveillance technologies over American cities. Unarmed MQ-9s already patrol the US borders between Mexico and Canada. Among various concerns, worries that the border patrol drones are being used to conduct surveillance on US citizens have become pressing. For example, on May 29th, US Customs and Border Patrol flew a Sky Guardian Predator B over protests in Minneapolis, Minnesota that arose over the vicious murder by the police of George Floyd, an unarmed black man. As reported by Chris Holt, the Sky Guardian took off from Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota and flew several circuits over the city before returning home. Since 1953, the US Customs and Border Patrol has been authorized to fly in a border zone that has been extended to 100 miles. But as the ACLU has noted, the Border Patrol often ignores the 100 mile limit. Indeed, Minneapolis is roughly 300 miles from the Canadian border. After a public outcry, the Border Patrol issued a press release that assured citizens that the Sky Guardian was simply supplying a live video feed to aid in situational awareness at the request of our federal enforcement partner in Minneapolis. The Border Patrol closed its press release by pointing to their humanitarian missions, which include flood, assisting flood victims and conducting search and rescue, as a way to reassure citizens about their activities. It becomes difficult to discern the difference between military and civilian in these humanitarian operations. As Jennifer Schnapp has pointed out in her discussion of drone operations during the aftermath of recent catastrophic floods in the US, humanitarian drone discourse is an imperial formation. Here we can extend Interpol Graywall's notion of the exceptional citizen of the racialized and gendered imperial and neoliberal security state to an exceptional technological assemblage that targets black and brown others through modes of war that incorporate militarized humanitarianism and surveillance. Humanitarian or not, there's little public oversight of US Customs and Border Patrol drone operations unless an especially egregious incident occurs and is noticed by vigilant citizens, we have no idea whether a Sky Guardian Predator Bees are flying 20,000 feet above metropolitan areas or border zones. When the technology website Gizmodo investigated Border Patrol flights over the course of one year between June 2019 and 2020, they found that seven drones have completed more than 150 flights patrolling the southern and northern borders zigzagging over politically active indigenous lands. Of course, this is where all the pipeline protests have taken place and circulate, circling the skies over cities, small and large. As the Gizmodo reporters argue, drone loans to police departments have important ramifications for how local police departments handle protests, providing capabilities for live surveillance of standoff situations, as well as tracking suspects 
vehicles and suspected weaponry. Border Patrol drone flights have also been documented in the Gulf of Panama, quite a distance from the United States border, most likely as part of drug smuggling interdiction efforts. This shakeup in drone design, manufacturing, and marketing has intensified during a period of geopolitical instability and domestic upheaval. While the Obama administration has been associated with the ramp up of drone warfare throughout the war on terror, and deservedly so, the Trump administration has relied heavily on drones in a number of ways that have received much less attention. After Trump removed the regulations to ensure greater transparency in reporting civilian casualties that Obama had finally instituted at the end of his presidency, drone strikes have become very difficult to quantify. But watchdog groups have reported that in Yemen, just for example, Trump has doubled the number of airstrikes that had been ordered by the Obama administration, leading to the deaths of 154 civilians. Just in the first half of last year, for the first time ever, US and Afghan air and drone strikes killed more civilians than their supposed enemy, the Taliban. Those strikes hit wedding parties, farmers, pregnant women, and small children. In part, this wide-scale deployment of drones in numerous conflict zones taking place without much comment can be attributed to the chaos and high drama of U.S. domestic politics over the past four years. There's so much to take on, and the narrow bandwidth of the global media attention span has been stretched about as far as it can go, and that is not very far, thanks to the Murdoch era of profit journalism. My concern is that as drones at various scales have become more ubiquitous, their incorporation into homeland state violence, as we have seen, is less remarked upon. Concomitantly, their deployment in warfare becomes normalized as well. For close to two decades, US-built and deployed large-scale drone assemblages have patrolled and attacked communities and nations which do not have their own air force, basically with impunity. This advantage has reduced casualties drastically for the US Air Force, while dramatically increasing damage and harm for civilians who have had no choice but to try to endure decades of US and allied air power. What we're witnessing now is a strategy by the growing and lucrative market for unmanned aerial vehicles to produce as many as possible and to sell them to whomever can pay. Yes, there are official rules and regulations, but a veritable tidal wave of malleable drone products are washing over any serious concerns. Countries that want what Seth Fransman has termed an instant air force can buy quite sophisticated drones for fairly reasonable prices and shift a stagnant battlefield into a devastatingly asymmetrical conquest. The atmosphere may be muddied, if you will, by non-state actors who modify off-the-shelf drones to attempt self-defense or to conduct attacks. The adaptability and practical nature of this range of drone products means that purchasers do not need trained pilots and may launch devices from the back of trucks or from anywhere, really. We could spend a good deal of time discussing this heavy tilt toward automation, malleability, mobility, and the further erosion of the human pilot along with human responsibility for civilian casualties. And I'm sure that this will be coming up uh, in the conference over the next several days. But I wanna focus here on the notion just for a moment of the instant air force. The current conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh, a disputed territory is a good case in point. The conflict has flared up continually since the dissolution of the Soviet Union as Armenians inside the internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan has sought to reunite their region with Armenia. 
Azerbaijan, which has deep resources from its oil industry, has superior military strength and has recently acquired Israeli and Turkish drones to conduct an air war that has rained bombs on civilian sites in Nagorno-Karabakh. David Ignatius has argued that the use of drones by Azerbaijan against civilian as well as military targets has altered the balance of power, providing a visceral demonstration of how modern weapons technology can suddenly unlock what had seemed to be a frozen conflict. Without any significant aerial vehicles of their own, the Armenians found themselves in a very dangerous and possibly doomed position. A few weeks ago in early November, they accepted a ceasefire on terms that are nothing less than punishing. What matters in particular for our discussion is that the drones that gave Azerbaijan an instant air force are considered to be small and relatively inexpensive. As Robin Dixon wrote in the Washington Post, the older Soviet defense systems used by Armenia could not defend fortified installations from the modern drones Azerbaijan deployed, like the Turkish Bayraktar TB2 and Israeli Harab Kamikaze drones, which hover over an area before diving in on a target and exploding. Taken together, these two kinds of drones demonstrate that national militaries are moving away from US-made products and towards a range of automated aerial vehicles. Asymmetries in air forces are being reorganized and the line between military and non-military use is also being renegotiated and reshaped. I began this talk with the example of a jokey social media post about drone line delivery to a couple stuck on a luxury cruise ship off the coast of Japan as the pandemic pandemic was just beginning its ravaging global circulation. I want to close with one last example of the drones we encountered during the spread of COVID-19 in 2020 and think about what we might be able to learn from them. It brings me to November 7th, the Saturday night following the presidential election in the United States. It had been an anxious and draining week for many of us as we waited for final votes to be tallied. The Trump administration was making outlandish claims of voter fraud and attempting to overturn the election. The coronavirus was raging through new areas of the country, filling hospitals and ICUs to overflow capacity. The death toll was spiking to levels beyond what we had seen during the worst days last spring. The idea of four more years of negligence, cruelty, and danger in every sector of society was truly crushing for many of us. Oscillating between glimmers of hope and great depths of despair, I took a look at the televised celebration organized by the Democratic Party to declare that Joseph Biden had definitively won the election and would be president-elect. It was a socially distanced affair replete with the kind of nice, uplifting, sort of nothing sort of speeches that one expects to hear at this kind of official event. And I was starting to feel a bit better. This all seemed completely normal. As the event concluded, the night sky lit up with exquisite constellations of little drones flying in carefully coded patterns, making patriotic shapes, evoking celebratory fireworks, which are, after all, always already military, but also not, and brought the new world of swarms, which are always already military, but also not, into the iconic mythologies of the next administration. I remembered how overjoyed I had been watching Barack Obama's televised election night celebration in 2008. And I reflected on how his administration had almost immediately become entangled in distance warfare to the point that the signature drone strikes that have exacted such horrifying civilian death tolls have become a major part of the Obama presidential legacy and our historical burden in the United States. 
my expectations for a future Biden-Harris administration have been tempered by pragmatism. But the drone show reminded me what the nation state's really all about. The bittersweet beauty of munitions that light up the sky are a kind of sublime in everyday militarism. Offered militarisms, offered as a treat at every national holiday and deployed for the most special large occasions. The drone version for events like the Global Olympics or the US Super Bowl halftime extravaganzas bring together corporations and university innovation incubators around the world to offer spectacular entertainment. The Biden-Harris drone swarm was designed and implemented by Verge Aero, a company spun out of the University of Pennsylvania Pennovation Labs, a research consortium that sponsors many startup robotic and autonomous systems co companies. Verge Aero has been quite successful as their website states, they have produced drone shows for among others, the Olympics, the Rolling Stones and Coldplay, and of course, now the president elect. Drone shows they emphasize in bold letters on their website are their singular mission. It's all we do. In my comments today, I've tried to open up avenues for discussion of just this kind of mission statement in the era of COVID-19. Companies like Bridge Arrow or Dragonfly that position themselves as friendly alternatives to General Atomics or DJI are not so much a different approach as they are dynamic actors in the network of malleability that Anna Jackman argues is responsible for the robust health of the industry. For some who watch the drone industry, the Biden light show was a signal that this is an administration that's already accepting drones. When Sally French, who blogs as the drone girl, asked her Twitter followers for their hot takes on the president-elect's epic drone show, one respondent replied, clear sign the DJI ban is going to end. For these drone industry proponents, a forward-thinking administration will open the airspace and restrictions on foreign-made drones, especially Chinese ones, and fund autonomous vehicle innovation and development. Many other posts reiterated this enthusiasm. It's been a long and quite terrible year, and perhaps a pretty light show to celebrate a change in administration that could finally begin to alter the path of a virulent disease was just what some of us needed. My purpose in speaking to you has been to point out that the diversity of drone products and applications that proliferate exponentially each year can distract us from noticing the militarist relations they generate and disturb. The everyday militarism that permeates settler colonial societies, as well as those formed by imperialism, hides inside the mythology of consumer choice and individual as well as corporate initiative, coiled deep within the discourse of nationalist exceptionalism. In closing, for now, I would simply say that when it comes to the production and operation of drones of all sizes and shapes, the mission is not singular and it's not all we do. Thank you very much. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.